ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are expecting a standard throwaway wrestling podcast, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. It's one man's meat, ladies and gentlemen, and we are back to invade your ears. I'm Big Meaty Cool, but you can call me Chris, and I'm joined once again by a man who came up on the mean streets of Preston, Lancashire, as a bare-knuckle fighter, before rising through the ranks of the UK scene to lead a ragtag bunch of insurgents hell-bent on changing the norms of modern-day WWE. Today he works for the company as one of their hottest commentators. It's the meat guy, Danny, the Scottish bad news juggalo. And how do you like them apples, Danny, mate? Very well, mate. Uh, but I'm just wondering, where's Wade Barrett? Because I just heard him a second ago. <laughs> well, as you probably heard, Danny, he's got a very bad case of laryngitis, so he's he's gone for a fisherman's friend and a lie down. <laughs> no, but I'm really good, mate. How's yourself? Oh, I'm not bad at all, mate. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited to be talking about uh, another one of uh, Chrissy's great disappointments in wrestling. It's time for the Nexus. You're either with us or nexus or however that saying when <laughs> <laughs> you're either nexus or against us my oh, friend I think, yeah, or something yeah. like that yeah but but guys we do hope that you are with us as the one man's meat podcast is proudly part of the unbooking the territory family and all episodes of our main show as well as first run episodes of our spin-off series cold cuts can be found over on their feed first before appearing on the One Man's Meat podcast feed seven days later. However, our other bonus content, such as Disgusting Awful, our horror movie review series, Acceptable in the 90s, the Big Meaty Cool solo series looking at the 90s wrestling scene, and our latest venture, Ask Meat Anything, are only available via our main feed. So if hearing more of us is something that you would be interested in, please throw us a follow through your favourite podcast provider of choice to never miss a minute of our glorious content. And if you're feeling particularly generous, do please leave us a review, as that will increase our awareness and prompt more listeners to check us out. Please and thank you. So Danny, we have quite a lot to go over today, although hopefully this won't be another one of those three-hour extravaganzas that we accidentally put on. I have a feeling it will, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, but only if you say so. But that being said, before we can get to our main topic, we need to do what we're best at, deviating. That's right, guys. It's time to ask, what's your beef? This time. So, Danny, uh, what is your beef for us this month, mon frere? I have been really getting back into Breaking Bad. And um, I'm now up to season four. Uh, I've just been burning through them for other days. I've just been like one, two, three, four episodes. And it's, yeah, very, very binge worthy. Um, I know um, you said before you've um, tucked into the first um, uh, episode, the pilot episode. But yeah, I would highly recommend that to you, mate, because it's just very addictive. Oh, that is awesome, mate. Yeah, it's it's on a, a very long list of things to watch. But I'll be perfectly honest, there's... Certain things that are pretty much only for me and the certain things that are pretty much only for the wife. So when we do watch TV together, we're very selective by the things that 
she will enjoy. So we tend to watch a lot of like sitcoms or like true crime stuff or thrillers and stuff like that. But yeah, things like Breaking Bad and The Wire and things like that, it's not really up her alley. So it's often having to find the time to watch that for myself. But I think I'm, I'm just coming to the end of my current beef and then I think I'll be digging into Breaking Bad after that. So at least I've got something to look forward to. Oh, absolutely, mate. And what is your current beef? Well, mate, I have been uh, currently enjoying re-watching the Greg Davis comedy, Man Down. That is fantastic. It is. Uh, for anybody that hasn't seen it before, uh, so hello, Dan Griffin. Nice to have you on board. It is basically about a man who is going through a midlife crisis and all the things that go along with it. So it's written by and stars Greg Davis, who is excellent at playing those pathetic characters in life. Uh, I I almost think he does it on purpose, having recently seen him in Cuckoo as well. Uh, But he's joined on his misadventures by the very funny Mike Wozniak and equally hilarious Roisin Conaty as the two hapless friends that end up being dragged into his constant schemes and misdirections in life. It is on Channel 4 streaming platform, but for those of you that are Netflix subscribers, which let's face it, everybody is these days, it has recently come back to the service, which is where I'm watching it. Oh, fantastic, mate. I'm going to go and re-watch that at some point. Yeah, mate, please do, because the the thing with the Channel 4 stuff on Netflix is it does have a habit of just disappearing and reappearing. I I am kind of um, on a, a rewatch of Shameless at the moment, and it literally disappeared off Netflix for four days before coming back again. Now, even for Channel 4, that's incredibly random. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but talking of disappearing rather quickly, it is time to cover version one of the Nexus. And what did you know of this group prior to looking into them for research purposes, my friend? Well, the first thing that I, re- that I knew and remembered was the massive logo, because um, I remember uh, that being everywhere or over the dirt sheets and stuff. But I wasn't watching um, WWE at this point. I was just too addicted to um, TNA wrestling. I was like, oh, I don't care about WWE because it was a lot of like booking um, for children, basically. If you look at the direction of the show and stuff like that. But going back, watching this, I feel I was wrong because I missed out on a lot of good stuff, like the entire Bret Hart comeback and all that stuff. But yeah, um, for as pertains to Nexus, I've always read and heard that they were one of the best multi-man group in WWE history. So, yeah, it's been brilliant going back and uh, seeing their entire uh, first run. Yeah, mate, that's good. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people miss them. So, in, in my case, while I was a fan of this group, I was kind of a fan of them from afar because I was kind of um, forced not to be watching wrestling at the time because I was both preparing for a wedding, as in my wedding, uh, but at the time, uh, back in 2006, um, Hull, where I live, uh, had a massive flood and Apart from the kitchen being flooded, I thought I'd gotten away with it. But it had turned out that we had really bad, 
underfloor flooding which had just been continuously going on and on for ages because the drainage issue where I lived was terrible as well and basically all the power was cut out at the beginning of the year in 2010 and it turned out that our junction box was had been floating in water for years and years and had finally given up the ghost so a friend of ours as a wedding present was rewiring the house before Naomi moved in after the wedding uh, because we're old-fashioned like that but um, he was taking his sweet time what what should have taken him a, a week to do took about nine months and he, he literally did it the week before I then redecorated the entire downstairs so that my beloved could move her stuff in before the wedding um, but basically I was able to watch these guys in their first incarnation before coming onto the main roster um, because WWE was showing a certain program that they featured on online on WWE.com which I was having to watch on my lunch breaks at work but that was literally the only WWE that I watched from January to September of 2010 uh, so yes um, again a lot of my watching of the Nexus has been archival really but literally from seeing their stuff from like 2012 onwards when I started watching a lot of old stuff online I completely fell in love with this group and yeah I, I, I do think it is criminal that um, as we'll come to talk about they're, they're almost the reverse of another prominent faction in wrestling which we will get to in due time uh, but in order to look at the origins of this faction we need to talk about a concept that was developed by the WWE to replace their midweek ECW brand in order to showcase their developmental talents more this was NXT but Danny this isn't the NXT that we know and love now is it absolutely not mate um, this is the origins of NXT so um I have watched this in the past, the full seasons, when I first got the WWE Network a few years ago. And the best way I can describe it is like watching something from Takeshi's Castle because <laughs> the challenges I loved, um, it just like it made fans more invested in certain characters, like to see, oh, can he climb this rope faster than that character? So, yeah, fantastic stuff, um, the season one. Did you enjoy it, mate? I did enjoy it to be honest yeah I, I was really refreshed by the change of pace that it was compared to the main product uh, so yes um, for those of you that haven't been listening to a lot of the firsts and lasts on unbooking the territory NXT basically debuted as a seasonal show in 2010 presented as a hybrid between a standard in-ring contest and a reality TV program where contestants would compete in challenges designed to both test their mettle and their ability to think quickly in order to get the crowd on their side. So this could be promo challenges, it could be obstacle courses, whatever it was. But there was an awful lot of good stuff on this programme. Like I say, the first season was really refreshing. It did start taking a bit of a nosedive after that because people got sick of the concept. But one thing that cannot be taken away from season one is that there were some real banger matches on as well. I mean, this is the season that gave us Daniel Bryan versus Chris Jericho at a time where Bryan Danielson was li had literally been the king of the indies and had 
pretty much I think he'd had something like six weeks in the developmental program before he was debuted on here so you know he was a real hot prospect so yeah there was a good mixture of a refreshing attitude to programming and some really good wrestling on here as well wasn't there absolutely mate and a lot of them are just hidden gems and definitely something I'll go back to as well and see like I'm sure Christian had a few matches as well and yeah just fantastic stuff yeah he totally did and it is a season especially the first one that I do re-watch constantly and it introduced us to eight fresh-faced rookies who were paired each with a superstar or a pro as their mentor along the 10-week run of the series and we'll be listing the rookies in order of elimination so the first rookie was Michael Tarver who was a gentleman that primarily worked the indies in the Ohio area before coming to WWE via Florida Championship Wrestling. He amassed a win-loss record of one win and seven losses and was the first rookie eliminated after nominating himself to be eliminated, which WWE management obliged with. Um, so, Danny, do you have any memories of Michael Tarver at all? Um, nothing comes to mind, but he did really have a cool face mask that before everyone else started using them because of the virus and stuff. But, yeah, he, that made him stand out, so you've got to give him props. Yeah, he did have a, a very cool look, but I've got to be honest, mate, with, with Michael Tarver, to me, there always seemed to be something missing. I, yeah. I could never quite put my finger on it because he seemed to have all the tools. He had decent size. He was he was an OK worker. You could you could have seen him being the workhorse in a in a mid card tag team. And like you say, his his look was just brilliant, like how he presented himself. But just nothing seems to mesh with him, did it really? No, not at all, and it's such a shame. I mean, I don't know if he's still wrestling today, but it would be nice to see him try and have another go down the line. Yeah, it would. Um, if I'm honest, I, I think he's a Christian rap artist or something like that at the moment. Something like that, anyway. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, I think he... I think he raps as Monster Tava or something like that. He's, he's got stuff on YouTube anyway. He's He's got bars, so, you know, yeah. good on him, as long as he's happy. You can't hate that. You can't hate that. I mean, life after wrestling uh, is usually a depressing one for wrestlers, so that's nice yeah. to see. Exactly. It, it is nice when people can get out on their own terms, isn't it? Yeah. One guy that is definitely doing things on his own terms, though, is probably the most successful NXT contestant of all time, and that's Daniel Bryan, a.k.a. Bryan Danielson. And you can call him what you like because your brothers here will not judge. But this guy was the big independent star of the early to mid-2000s, known for his time in Ring of Honor when ROH wasn't a cokehead man-child's plaything. Uh, Brian stood out from an in-ring perspective, having an excellent match with Chris Jericho, and actually showed that he had a decent charisma as well in his awesome back-and-forth relationship with his pro, The Miz. Uh, but despite his accolades, Brian was the second to be eliminated when he used his win-loss record of 0 and 10 as a reason to nominate himself. So, short of the eventual winner of the season, Danny, this guy is probably the most well-known contestant, isn't he? Absolutely, mate, yeah. And he's the only one uh, of the um, the original eight here that went on to main event WrestleMania. So, yeah, 
it's it always goes back to that um who is the most well known tough enough um competitor and I always say the Miz because he's the only one to go on to main event WrestleMania. That's the ultimate peak of a professional wrestler, isn't it? It totally is, yeah. Like he he came out and stood out at the very peak of his field, so you can't argue with that at all. So yeah. no mate, that's a very good point. Uh, but one man whose head came to a perfect point was our third rookie, Skip Sheffield, who was the first contestant to be eliminated via the pros poll. He was better known at the time as former Tough Enough contestant Ryan Reeves and would eventually go on to become Ryback, the deadly multiple blocking quote-unquote celebrity and health food brand ambassador these days who has got about as much chance of returning to wrestling as I have debuting in it. Uh, but he wasn't much more than a standard power guy here, was he, pal? He really wasn't. I mean, they tried different things. They gave him a cowboy hat, and I think he spoke with a southern accent at one point. That just went nowhere. But, um, yeah, it, he, he needed a lot of work at this point. That's it. And it's a shame, really, because, you know, you can ask Bret Hart and uh, JBL, you know, the minute you give anybody a cowboy hat, they'll get over instantly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One guy who seemingly had no problem getting over there at all was Darren Young, who he was pictured as really just another mid-level guy on this show. But I thought he was one of our surprise packages, really. He had a really interesting dynamic with his pro CM Punk, who at the time was the leader of the Straight Edge Society, who would try to turn Young away from his South Beach party boy ways. But he's actually carved out a really nice WWE career for himself at the time, and he's currently gainfully employed by New Japan Pro Wrestling. So he's really got something going for himself there to be, you know, um, put on a pedestal on both of those companies, doesn't he, really? He really has, mate. And the one thing you can say about him is he always had passion. Um, and, I mean, it comes through in his WWE career because I haven't seen too much of his New Japan stuff. But, yeah, it, it's, I'm so glad he's still wrestling today. Yeah, me too. He, he was a guy that I was always really fond of. And especially, you know, in future One Man's Meet episode candidates, the primetime players, which, again, was a team made up of two former NXT contestants who pretty much run through the entire duration of NXT. So, yeah, a very underrated wrestler, underrated tag team guy. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that he's still getting his flowers, to be honest, because, yeah, he's he's done quite a lot for himself in a relatively short space of time. Yeah, he absolutely has. Our next rookie was also our next far and away surprise package, and that is Heath Slater, uh, who went on to be the fifth eliminated from the show. Um, to me, he had the absolute best chemistry outside of our winner with his pro Christian and a very respectable five wins and six losses record. Uh, and again, he'd go on to have um, what I would consider to be an amazing WWE career. Uh, he went on to be a multiple-time tag team champion. He had a real working man's hero charisma. He had that awesome period where each week he'd come out and uh, anger the local legend who would absolutely murderise him. But to me, Heath Slater was a real throwback to those guys in the 80s and 90s that you absolutely loved and it didn't matter that they never won a title? Yeah, 
No, totally, mate. And that's a great way of um, descri- um, describing him because he definitely had, to my opinion, like he was the best on the microphone in this group and he had a lot of charisma, as you said, and just a lot of unique look about him as well. I mean, there wasn't too many wrestlers doing, who were ginger around this time, was there? <laughs> no, you're right. And it just goes to show you that uh, Sheamus didn't have to have the market cornered there, did it? There was there was plenty of room for more cinnamon blondes in wrestling, wasn't there? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we then get to our final three. And our first man was a little bit of a surprise to make it that far, especially if you happen to be Steve-O, because this is his favourite wrestler of all time, no questions asked, Justin Gabriel, who was promoted by his pro Matt Hardy as WWE's answer to AJ Styles, which at the time I could have totally seen because in 2010, AJ Styles was a massive charisma vacuum as well, wasn't he? <laughs> he certainly was. I mean, they had to get Ric Flair with him, but even that just uh, muddied the waters with him, didn't it? <laughs> It absolutely did. Um, but both men, you know, you could argue they were certainly solid in the ring. And especially yeah. in Justin Gabriel's case, he had really good uh, training in the FWA over in Portsmouth, uh, a throwback to a previous episode. And he's still plugging away on the indie scene now. Uh, he's, he's appeared for such companies as Ring of Honor. Um, I'm sure, like a lot of people, he's had a, a run out in Impact Wrestling. He's appeared for Lucha Underground. Um, he's probably done one of the several YouTube shows for AEW where wrestlers go to die. Um, but to me, he is the oddest guy because if you look at his body of work post-WWE, it, it's hard to believe that this is a guy who is seemingly anonymous but he's had a really extensive career hasn't he he really has mate i mean he's wrestled everywhere he's wrestled five star bar wrestling dww evolve fcw uh ring of honor as you said yep even had a, a match in tna as well which i'm surprised about yeah i mean that's that's really cool uh to be fair and and again it, it, it's not that he's a bad wrestler it's no. just that literally if you were building a roster of guys, you wouldn't necessarily think of him because he's is that is that anonymous, you know? Like he, yeah. he he really is. But anyway, you know, a, a lot of the best people are, aren't they? Yeah, it's totally. I mean, he's just kind of there, but there's not. It's not always a bad thing. No, not at all. Uh, but talking of bad things, we we then get to our. Uh, a baffling runner-up for me here, but there you go. Um, David Atunga, who, despite my feelings about this person, he was probably the rookie that had the WWE-ready neon sign above his head. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, he's a terrible wrestler, uh, but he looked incredible. He could talk. Um, he had a ready-made gimmick as an overachiever type, thanks to his Harvard Law degree. Um, I suppose you could say he had model good looks. I, I, I don't know what type of catalogue we're talking about there. Uh, but he also happened to have a relationship with a prominent A-list celebrity in Jennifer Hudson. So he seemed to tick all of the boxes. But finishing second was probably the story of his career post-Nexus, wasn't it, Danny? It really was, mate. And outside of um, his uh, his 
sort of character with as Johnny Ace's um, assistant, um, I did notice something um, after we was talking about him the other day. I, I looked into him and I noticed when he divorced Jennifer Hudson, that suddenly when uh, his television time in wrestling started to uh, dwindle a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's almost like having somebody on call that could sing the American National Anthem at any time was the only reason that he was in gainful employment, wasn't it, really? It was, yeah. You, I mean, you have to connect the dots, but yeah, I mean, yeah, what can you do? <laughs> it is a very small amount of dots. It's dot one and dot two, and it makes <laughs> a perfectly straight line, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> too true, mate, too true. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, he would have a, a little bit of success. He, he would go on to win a few tag team titles and he was the longest reigning European champion on my WWE 2K14 account. Uh, but he would soon be relegated to announcer duties as one of the most pointless commentators since Mike Adamley. <laughs> but then we get by far the biggest standout from a WWE-ready point of view. And even for my little smarky boy ways back in 2010, I would admit he was the most worthy winner. And this was Preston's own Stu Bennett, a.k.a. Wade Barrett, a six-foot-seven former bare-knuckle boxer who was paired with Chris Jericho and the entire package and persona, Danny, just worked. His look was awesome. His charisma on the mic was interesting. And he had a real smash mouth style that was lacking in WWE at the time. I mean, you know, you can always have a favourite on these shows, but it was pretty plain to see within three or four weeks who was going to win this, wasn't it? Oh, you might as well have um, just had Vince McMahon come out on the probably the second episode of NXT and just say, well, Wade Barrett's winning, everyone else go home. <laughs> because, exactly. as you say, he was just had the look. He had, not just, you're talking about the body, but he also had the facials as well. And yeah. he just looked fantastic. He just looked like, just put this man on Raw tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, there, there are just those guys that have uh, infinite presence about them. And... Taking nothing away from what happens to this guy's career as a whole in the future, which we will keep returning to, because I've got quite an interesting idea for a part two to this episode down the line. He was just one of those guys that whenever he was around, you just got the feeling that it was his time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, mate. And the one thing that always makes me laugh about him is... Um, he was cutting a promo on Rob Van Dam one time, I think in 2014 or 15, and he said the line, I was in nappies when you was last Intercontinental Champion. Um, and I was just like, wait a minute, that was only like less than, well, just over 10 years ago. So he would have been in his uh, teenage years. Was he in Was he in nappies in his teens? Maybe, you know, like maybe he was a raging <laughs> alcoholic, who knows? <laughs> Uh, but Danny, of the eight people here, as I said, um, everybody always has a favourite on every show. So who was your favourite rookie on season one of NXT? It was far and away Heath Slater because he just screamed, as you were saying earlier, of charisma. Um, and he just had it, to be honest with you. I mean, I was just I was thinking 
this guy's gonna win it. I mean, we know we knew who was gonna win it because we we both had to watch this in archive form. But yeah, if there was anyone I could have chose to win it, it would have been Slater. How about you, mate? I completely agree with you, mate. I mean, in in my eyes, Heath Slater is the Brutus the Barber Beefcake that it's okay to like. <laughs> That's a great comparison. Yeah, in that again, like I said earlier, he's he's just that guy that. If he'd never won a title in his career, you wouldn't have cared less because he's a real throwback to those guys from the 80s and 90s that you just loved, whether they had a belt or not. And and yeah, um, Heath Slater was that guy for me. Like Whether he was face or heel, whatever dodgy gimmick he was lumbered with, whatever it may be, whenever he was on my TV, and even now on, on Impact, he is a reason that I'm paying through the nose because when he's on my TV... I've found my happy place. He's he's an just awesome, awesome package from top to bottom. Yeah, a lot like you talk about the 80s, you mean something like um, a Coco Beware type uh, wrestler yeah. where everyone can get invested in him. Yeah. That's right. And and that is that is truly it. Yeah, it, he, he definitely does have that vibe of, of a guy that, yeah, you... You wouldn't really buy him as a world champion, but if he ended up in a main event one day, it would just make you weld, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but on the June 1st, 2010 edition of NXT, Wade Barrett was declared the winner over Atunga, and as a result, was awarded a WWE contract and a championship match at a WWE pay-per-view of his choosing, while the others were left without a job. But, Danny, we wouldn't have to wait long to see all eight rookies again, would we? No, we certainly hadn't. We'd have to wait a whole six days until the June 7th, 2010 edition of Raw, where something major happened that's still talked about today as one of the most shocking, impressive debuts, which deserves to be on that list. Visitor, uh, we saw him earlier tonight. That's Wade Barrett. He is the uh, the winner of NXT Season One, that rookie competition. As John Cena looks to put CM Punk away, and Cena obviously distracted, but there's a five knuckle shuffle. Uh, John Cena. CM Punk, you got Gallo, Serena. Kane, Kane. Who's this? Oh my lord. They're, they're all over the place. They're right out here in front of us. They're, look, look. It's Slater, Sheffield. What is going on there? Back in, there there's chaos in ringside. Young and Slater. They, they, these, these are the rookies from, from the first season of NXT out here. Well, Cena got himself some help here. They just taking out his opponent. Punk's got still with them. You know, they still look, look at King. Punk and Gallows are out. They're out here at ringside. And these eight rookies who were a part of the NXT first season have surrounded John Cena in the ring. I don't think they came to make friends with John at all. Oh, my Lord. The rest... Oh, 
by John Cena. Went after Barrett, but ladies and gentlemen, it, it, it's eight on one. It's a buggy. You're right. It is eight on one. John Cena's being what, what are these guys doing here? What is this? He's down. They're, they're pulling and tearing at him. I mean, like he's a piece of raw meat. That's not even still with the... Okay, this is like a pack, pack of dogs. You see Cena was just reaching out for help. Serious situation. Punk and Gallows are down at ringside. As Cena's getting... It's like a pack of lions. This why or why? I have no idea. They attack. They've attacked Punk. I have no idea what is going so on. Everybody. This is just. This is just. It's, 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 it's inexplicable. Hey, no, watch I, out! Oh my God! Matt Striker! Matt Striker just got. Yes, mate, that is absolutely right. So the June 7th, 2010 edition of Monday Night Raw was labelled as a viewer's choice edition. So basically this meant that the viewers could choose participants and match stipulations. So in the main event of the show, CM Punk would face John Cena, having beaten out Rey Mysterio and then world champion Jack Swagger with 45% of the viewers' vote. But he would not be alone. No, absolutely not. The biggest thing that happened next was Wade Barrett coming down to the ring. And he's slowly walking down and stalking uh, the ring as it's as he's walking down. I thought this was excellent. How to de- This is how you debut someone. No fanfare, no music or anything like that. It just with Wade Barrett coming down cold with a look on his face of like I'm going to take out the top dog. Absolutely, and the guys listening to this episode right now would have heard a clip of the Nexus debut and it'll be quite a relatively short one compared to what we've got on the show. I I did edit out a lot from the clip because once the commentary team get taken out, it is mostly just noise from an audio perspective. But just to describe what happens, Wade Barrett comes out to the ring And he leads this group of insurgents who are the other seven NXT rookies who in turn attack John Cena, CM Punk, Luke Gallows, Jerry Lawler, NXT host Matt Stryker, who joined Lawler and Michael Cole on commentary for the night, and then Raw ring announcer Justin Roberts, as well as timekeeper Mark Yeaton and various other personnel around the ring before destroying everything at ringside, including the actual ring itself, forcing the match to end 
in a no contest. And Danny, as we have said, this is a really, really devastating piece of television from a wrestling perspective that is still quite a cathartic watch today, isn't it? It really is, mate. And you just talk about those YouTube thumbnails that, that always appear and things that you just don't forget, images in your head. Um, this has to be one of the most replayed moments. I mean, on YouTube alone it, today, it has well almost 20 million views. And I think that's part because you see the ring absolutely torn up. I mean, it was something that's something that I had never seen before. Um, the destruction, it just came off just, I mean, you knew it wasn't 100% legit, but you just felt like, wow, that wasn't supposed to happen. We've never seen the sacred ring torn up before. Yeah, it was really the fact that they went to the absolute extreme. I think it leads you to be allowed to have your sense of disbelief. Yeah. It's it, yeah. like it completely takes away everything that you know about wrestling, doesn't it? In that, you know, yeah. you you just allow yourself to take everything that's happened as gospel because it's so it's so raw, if you pardon the pun. So what we've actually seen before, like we have had the absolute never loses franchise of the company being taken out in a stretcher. And then guys like Justin Roberts, who is largely an anonymous character being focused on by daniel bryan like getting you know completely like like strangled with his necktie even that the fact that as you say the ring which is the most sacred thing is taken apart like it's it's completely a really visceral like stripping away of everything that you come to know about wrestling isn't it it really is, mate, and it was just this was just perfectly booked, to be honest with you. It was just fantastic. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, but unfortunately, as as well booked as it is, we we end up getting our first casualty of the angle already. Depending on how you feel about this, possibly in in real life, I don't believe this myself. But as a result of Daniel Bryan's actions. The WWE felt that his acts were too violent for the company's TV PG programming and they released him from his contract on Tuesday, June the 11th, 2010, which is a really sad indictment of the shareholder era, isn't it, Danny? It really is, mate, but I'm 100% with you on that. I, I just feel it was an extra little bit of um, garnish to be like, oh, we need to make this even more controversial um, to get the internet talking and as you were saying before we started recording um, to kind of like let him go to WWE friendly promotions and wrestle because he he didn't show up on TNA Impact who was WWE's main rival in America at that point you know he didn't do shoot interviews with RF video or high spots or anything like that he was kept relatively quiet and yes you see pay-per-views like um fatal four-way and i think money in the bank had um fans screaming we want daniel bryan but it was like this just felt like a work in hindsight to me it did yeah and i think it'll show more when uh we see a certain person 
make his re-debut for the company, it, it, it'll all start to make sense, the way that they are portrayed uh, after what has happened here. But um, as both a show-closing angle and an introduction to a new group, this is an excellent debut for this group and is something that WWE had very rarely, if ever, attempted before in that you have this group of relative outsiders who had been seen enough on TV to be tired of the disrespect that they felt that they'd received from fans and WWE superstars alike, banding together with the common cause of upsetting the current establishment. And you absolutely cannot have a bigger impact on night one than taking out the franchise player of the company now, can you? Absolutely not, mate. And that was just a smart... Um, props to Cena as well for for agreeing to this, and I mean it's rare for him to be vulnerable, but we're going to get into that in the later on in the episode. But yeah, um, massive, massive success. Yeah, it certainly is, and uh, this is where I need to make a very quick disclaimer, listeners. So. Just to state right now, a lot of the segments and matches that we are covering today can be found on the Best of Nexus playlist on the WWE Network. Depending on which version of the network you have now, because they're rolling out an update, it'll be easier or really difficult to find. But I promise you it's on there if you give yourself time to find it. But what you will also find on what is a really good playlist on this group is a lot of propaganda and revisionist history about how the Nexus were an unstoppable force. Well, spoiler alert, folks, they were an unstoppable force for around two months. But it's a really fun compilation regardless. So as much as this is going to be a celebration of an incredible group it is also going to be a little bit of a commiseration into what could have been so this episode may end up being at least on my part a little bit more negative than most episodes that we've done but this doesn't take away from my love of the nexus it's more a jab in the ribs to the company itself of just what they could have done with what was presented before them no, I totally understand, but I'm just shocked, Chris. Did you just accuse WWE of uh, having revisionist history? I'm, I'm just blown away by that. I think I just did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, tie my kangaroo down, sport. Flipping heck. Who'd have thought, <laughs> eh? Yeah, it's a, blo- it's a revelation and a half, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. I mean, who'd have thought that, you know, uh, being the far and away winners of everything that they take on, that they could, uh, you know, state whatever they want about something, whether it's true or not. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I am shocked and appalled. So, the Nexus are already down one member, which Wade Barrett explained the rationale for Brian's exit on the June 14th, 2010 episode of Raw, explaining that the absence was Brian having felt remorse for his actions, leading Barrett to kick him out of the group. Wade then claimed that their violent arrival was a result of their mistreatment during the NXT competition and insinuated that their issues lay more with WWE management than anybody in the locker room apart from their pros. None of the members apologised for the events of the previous week when prompted by Barrett as he had been asked to do so by higher-ups earlier in the day. 
This led to Bret Hart confronting the group as he had been named Raw General Manager three weeks earlier, but they threatened to continue their attacks if their lists of demands, especially getting guaranteed WWE contracts, were not met. The Nexus responded to Hart by viciously attacking him and driving into his vehicle with a limousine in a scene oddly reminiscent of the NWO's attack on The Rock in 2002. After Bret Hart's attack, which occurred during the tag team match where Cena teamed with Orton to take on Sheamus and Edge in a fatal four-way preview, Vince McMahon removed Bret as Raw General Manager due to his injuries and subsequently appointed a new general manager who chose to remain anonymous for fear of being attacked like Hart was. This anonymous general manager, if you will, communicated only through emails quoted by head commentator and official spokesman Michael Curl. This anonymous GM would sign the group to long-term contracts and the nexus would be established. So, Danny, without the nexus, there would be no anonymous general manager. And without the anonymous raw general manager, there would be no heel Michael Cole, a.k.a. one of the biggest mistakes that WWE ever committed. Yes, amen, mate. And what can you say? I mean, who would know for well over two years that anonymous general manager was just barely a few inches away from Michael Cole because he was underneath the ring the whole time. Yeah, and was literally a few feet tall. But we will get to that in the future. As on the June 21st episode of Raw, the Nexus would apologise for their actions, explaining that they came from a love of WWE. On behalf of our entire group, I'd like to apologise for our actions the past few weeks. You know, we did what we did for one reason, one reason only. Our love for WWE. We love WWE so much, we'd do anything to be here. Anything to get noticed. We would do anything for those contracts. Yeah, we had to resort to desperate measures. But now that we've got those contracts, feel it's time things can resort to normal. We're trying to say we're sorry. We have no problem with the WWE locker room. We have no problem with the WWE universe. The attacks the last few weeks has been nothing personal. And there are a few individuals we want to single out and apologize to. The first individual to speak was David Otunga. That was Heath Slater. This is Justin Gabriel. First up, we'd like to apologize to Bret Hart. Bret, you paint us in the corner. You wouldn't sign us. 
And then, then you fire the only connection we have to the WWE, Wade Barrett. But I would just like to let you know that whatever we did, we are sorry. And we hope that you're doing okay now. Secondly, we'd like to apologize to Tyson Kidd and David Hart Smith. Guys, I know you're angry. But we had to defend ourselves tonight. And from here on forth, I hope that we can all coexist peacefully. This is uh, Darren Young. We would also like to personally apologize to John Cena. It's nothing personal. I remember when I was on NXT, people used to call me the Black John Cena. But to be honest, we needed to make a statement. We needed to make an impact, and what better way to do so than by attacking the top guy here in the WWE. So guys, I represent everyone here, and I say that John Cena, you will. You will get your title back. This is Skip Sheffield. We all here as a group want to apologize to you, the WWE Universe. Personally speaking, back on NXT, all you good people supported me. You all joined in saying, yep, 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 what it do. So how about it, right here, right now, just like old times, we do it again. Yup, yup, yup! What it do? And for all you youngsters out there that we scared, and the parents watching, we hope, we truly, truly, truly hope you can find it in your hearts to forgive and forget. Now Michael Tarver. Okay, okay, from a single parent's perspective, I know all about the struggles of life. I used to be homeless. You know what, before I say anything else, I gotta apologize to my children. Kayla, Ty, Dominique, Christian, and Anthony back home. For everything you've seen your father do on TV, daddy is sorry, I raised you better than that. But that's the reason why when you have an opportunity to go after your life's dream, you gotta do whatever it takes legally to grab it. I mean, come on. We all know in the bottom of our hearts that if any one of you were in a position that we were in and you were given the choice to join up or be shown the door, you'd have done the exact same thing that we did. Now Wade Barrett. Now these gentlemen behind me, they all did what they had to do. But what about me, you might ask? I was the only one who had a job. I had a pay-per-view title shot. Why would I align myself with these desperate men? Well, the answer is this. One word, loyalty. You see, we decided a long time ago that no matter what, we were going to have some fun on NXT. 
but we were going to stick together and by the end of it we were all going to make sure that we had contracts because that's what loyalty is all about. You see, no longer were we going to allow WWE management to dictate our careers. You know, NXT finished about a month ago, yet these men here, individuals with apparently no common link, have formed a nexus, a bond that I promise you will never be broken. And I'm pleased to report that not only has my contract been reinstated by the new general manager, but my pay-per-view title shot has been reinstated too. Now that leads me quite nicely to your new WWE Champion, Sheamus. Now Sheamus, we all heard what you had to say earlier. But despite however you want to spin it, the simple fact is, the reason you're WWE Champion today is because of us. Now we made a target out of John Cena and you were just lucky enough to capitalize. Well think about this Sheamus, if we made a target out of John Cena, we can just as easily make a target out of you. Now I've got a pay-per-view title match, Seamus, and that means at any time I can take your title off you. So if I were you, I'd wipe that smug look off your face. Because whether it's John Cena later tonight or Wade Barrett at some point in the future, you're gonna lose your title. And mark my words, I am going to become WWE Champion here. And when that happens, no matter who I have to be, I will be making no apologies. Their series of apologies come off as extremely disingenuous though, which is what you want in a heel faction, isn't it, Danny? Absolutely, mate. And I got massive NWO 2002 debut vibes off of this because uh, it was almost like it was kind of word for word. They'd watched that No Way Out 2002 pay-per-view and they was like, we have to model ourselves over this because it was brilliant. It was really good. Um, you just felt like these guys ain't sorry. They're just saying that so they can stay here. Um Loved it, yeah, really. Did you enjoy this promo? I absolutely loved it, mate, to be honest. So straight away, you've got these seven guys now that are setting themselves out to be ruthless and setting themselves out to do whatever it took to get noticed. And this is where we get the reason why this group are called the Nexus. As, as part of this promo, we get Wade Barrett's awesome loyalty speech where he sets out that from the very beginning the plan was always for the group to stick together in order to all gain employment forged by an unbreakable bond which when you look at what the term nexus means it's an unbreakable bond so i thought that was really clever as a name for the group uh, th this isn't just a bunch of guys cobbled together for no reason it's a group of guys that are firmly entrenched 
that are setting out to become one of the main stables on Raw in order to get what they all want, which is a chance to showcase themselves in this company. Absolutely, mate. And it just makes all the sense in the world why they would be here. It certainly does. And the Nexus would reinforce this newfound reputation by attacking several wrestlers and legends over the next few weeks. So we've had Bret Hart. We would go on to get Vince McMahon being attacked, as well as Hall of Famers, Dusty Rhodes, and unfortunately for what would happen afterwards, Ricky Steamboat, who was enjoying something of a comeback at this time as a occasional in-ring performer, but this attack that he would receive would also happen to coincide with a massive aneurysm that he would suffer, which forced him to take a step back. Yeah, and that's such a shame. And um, but yeah, it, brilliant. Um, like the way that the Nexus was just attacking everybody, and I mean everybody with credibility. You say like a Dusty Rhodes or Ricky Steamboat, even Vince McMahon at this point. These weren't just like uh, mid carders. These were big time Hall of Famers, and yeah, it just helped the Nexus so much. It really did, and it really helped to set their stall out, as throughout the summer, the Nexus would continue to turn their attention and violence towards another very important figure in WWE, and that would be one John Felix Cena. First, Cena would be scheduled to face the Nexus in a 7-on-1 handicap match on the July 12th edition of Raw, but Cena attacked Darren Young the previous week, subsequently removing him from the following week's scheduled match, which became a 6-on-1 handicap match, which the Nexus would win anyway, as the numbers proved to be too much, even for Super Cena, and even though Justin Gabriel did his usual, I'm going to stand on the corner for 12 minutes before performing my 450 splash yeah yeah this i mean this is going to be said a lot during this episode as we record chris but this was the second time that john cena allowed himself to be vulnerable and it just did massive amounts of favors for the nexus here but yeah you're also spot on about justin gabriel just standing there like a lemon <laughs> he yeah, yeah it, brilliant segment overall though it was, and like I, I, I don't mean to be funny to Gabriel because I would call myself a fan of his, but again, this is something that Pac does as well, in that they they stand on that top rope for as long as humanly possible, and I think sometimes in the time that they've stood that and done that, I could pour myself a beer from the fridge, so someone could easily get up and do something about this. But anyway, I mean, whatever. I mean. I wouldn't know the first thing about wrestling psychology, but there you go. Uh, but uh, John Cena would find some support in Sheamus, who would run in to prevent any further damage post-match. And then at Money in the Bank on July the 18th, 2010, the Nexus would attempt to get involved in the WWE Championship match involving Sheamus and Cena in a steel cage. But they were able to hold them off and escape, and Sheamus would win the match and retain his title. But this would start a recruitment drive by Cena to form a star-studded team of performers, incorporating Cena, Bret Hart, Edge, Chris Jericho, John Morrison, R-Truth, 
and a returning Daniel Bryan to face the Nexus in a monumental 7-on-7 match at SummerSlam 2010. And there's a lot to unpack with this particular match, Danny, but we need to talk about the true meaning of people power, as Daniel Bryan would come back within two months, seemingly due to massive popular demand, or just when WWE waited for the heat to die down while still paying him for the last eight weeks. Depending on who you believe, I know what I believe. So do I, mate. And yeah, it was just like, I mean, we knew this was happening um, when the Grey Carly was attacked by the Nexus, it, I think the fix was in. I mean, you could just see, like, oh, there's a mystery person. You had that little thing with the Miz um, teasing that he would make his announcement at SummerSlam. He announced that he wouldn't be. And then I think after that, everyone just was expecting Daniel Bryan. I believe Daniel Bryan's name was chanted as the baby faces were making their entrance, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So, yes, it was one of the uh, worst kept secrets on the message boards that he was coming back. And I think it was one of those things where through no fault of his own, he was found at the airport or something like that. Um, This this was at a time where they weren't quite as careful with their debuts. So, yeah, um, it was it was rumoured that he was around, but. Yeah, that that pop that he gets when uh, Cena replaces The Miz with with Daniel Bryan at the start of the match is just brilliant. And it is on the Nexus playlist, guys. So if you go through um, the chapter section at SummerSlam 2010, it completely misses all of that and goes straight to the match. Whereas on the Nexus playlist, you get the full entrances and everything, which is where this angle takes place. So it's probably better to watch it on that if you can. Absolutely, mate. And you have to talk about being uh, full circle. The Miz was Daniel Bryan's pro. So, like, him refusing and then Daniel Bryan just stepping in there, it just made that storyline where he could, like, as it went on in the future, but it just brought that whole thing full circle as well. Yeah, it did. And, um, yeah, again, it's it's a seemingly never-ending feud between Danielson and The Miz. But it's also so good, isn't it? Like, like people point to the Talking Smack promo where The Miz finally gives Brian a piece of his mind. But honestly, it's that really odd pairing where these two are just magic together. And to me, it highlights the fact that The Miz really isn't as bad as people make out. No, no, he's really not. And... It's it's a perfect story because even though The Miz was in independent wrestling before he got to WWE, that's not the narrative. Um, he he's seen as somebody who just won a contract. Well, he didn't even win Tough Enough, but in the eyes of the casual fan, this man came from Tough Enough, didn't do independent wrestling, is a safe worker, hasn't done many risks. And then on the other hand, you've got Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson who came from the independents. It took him years and years and years to get to WWE. And then like the fans would be more behind the underdog. So it was a perfect, um, I mean, it's a feud that still continues to this day. Yeah, it really does. Like you, you often get the odd little spat on social media and it always forces a wry smile. And I've, and I've, I've got to be honest, mate. I, it really wouldn't surprise me if, if Daniel Bryan, sorry, if Bryan Danielson's last run, as we're supposed to be calling him now, fire me out <laughs> of the cannon. Uh, it, it really wouldn't surprise me if his last run wasn't in the WWE. I mean, he's, yeah. 
he's doing his best work in AEW, but I think that's just because in 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 spite of the concussions and everything, he's always taken amazing care of himself from a diet point of view. And he he can still go, you know. He oh, isn't yeah. as old as people think. No, absolutely not. And even the fact of we're recording this on a Tuesday. Um, last night on Raw, The Miz still using Daniel Bryan's signature yes kicks. So what yeah, can you do? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's always that little hint there that he could come back at any time and and yes, Hunter slash Vince slash Bloke who runs Endeavour, whoever it may be, Lord, please spare us from the Blackpool Bloody Combat Club. Break them up yes. any way you can. Sign them to <laughs> contracts and then keep away from each other for life. <laughs> I'm with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the time, Danielson noted that WWE apologised to him for his <clears throat> release, explaining that they had sponsors that they had to deal with, which... From a kayfabe point of view, makes sense if you consider the argument of waiting for the heat to die down. But it's yeah. blatant that it was a massive lie and he'd been getting paid the whole time. Uh, <laughs> but WWE were also gracious in allowing him to complete his independent bookings as a contracted performer. And his storyline performance in the match, as I was alluding to earlier, would show the stock that WWE would put in him as we take a look at this match. So, guys. SummerSlam 2010 in itself is a horrid pay-per-view. Anybody that tries to defend this show as an event, they properly need their head seen to because they don't like wrestling. This is an awful, awful show. Um, but this main event, for all of its problems, it's not half bad. As in our main event of SummerSlam 2010, the Nexus would face Team WWE. Now, this is one of the matches that I've chosen to showcase for this episode, and it is a long match. But in this case, considering that it was a main event, I think that's fine, mate. What say you? Absolutely, mate. I mean, um, this match just went shy over 35 minutes. Um, it felt like, I mean, because this had a basically just over a month, um, well, nearly two months uh, build, uh, it is very, very. I love the little side stories we got with it with Chris Jericho and Edge. Like, why would they be teaming with Cena? So they walk out. Um, yeah, this had a lot of um, work done to it. So credit to whoever was booking this because, yeah, it, this. I mean, you can really call SummerSlam a one match card, and I'll be uh, proud to call SummerSlam 2010 a one match card because this is the one match. It really is, and. Yeah, I initially intended to pick every single moment out of this match one by one, but I don't think I'm going to do that really because there is a lot to unpack in the match if you do it like that. But it's just safe to say that for the first half of this match, this match is pretty much the Daniel Bryan show. And while I wasn't a fan of the guy's commentary in general, when it came to him talking about Daniel Bryan, I thought as a heel commentator, Michael Cole did his best work because he really played up the fact that this is the guy that you're supposed to cheer because the guy that you don't like as a commentator is 
not in support of him, you know. So yeah. um, I will give that for Michael Cole, as we are very deep into the heel Michael Cole era. But I think it worked with Daniel Bryan, and I think it certainly elevated him in the fans' eyes as somebody that they should be keeping their eye on. And it certainly works here, as within the first minute, we get our first elimination, as uh, Bryan starts early on Darren Young and taps him out with the LaBelle lock. So we are very much starting as we mean to go on by showcasing Brian here. And I can't say that I'm too annoyed by that, to be fair, as yet. No, absolutely not, mate. Um, it's, yeah, a good way to start. Uh, it's just like that shock factor, isn't it? It really is. And a lot of those shocks do continue, given that the Nexus was a little bit of a dominating force as... Michael Tarver is the next one to fall as John Morrison gets his chance to have a little bit of a showcase, uh, including the still phenomenal Starship Pain uh, when he still hits it in whatever name of the company he is taking as his surname. I I love that gimmick, I really do. Uh, But he hits the Starship Pain splash on Tarver, having tanned his ass for a little bit, and we get our second elimination at the fourth minute uh, as a result of that. Um, But I was starting to fear that a pattern was going to start to form here where uh, a lot of the Nexus guys were going to drop quite early. Yeah, I, I could see that as well. I was thinking, oh, John Cena's going to be the final one and he's going to take out all of them. Um, and uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but thankfully we did get a little bit of uh, of a respite slash reprieve from that as um, Skip Sheffield came in and decided that he wanted to be the best bout machine for a little bit, uh, bringing on his best Terry Gordy impressions and I don't even mean that as a dig I I think he actually did quite well in this match when he got his moments Uh, but he showcased a lot of his power on Morrison uh, and would eventually uh, lead to softening himself up enough in order for Gabriel to tag himself in uh, to hit Morrison with a kick to the back of the head before Sheffield comes back in with an awesome-looking lariat on Morrison to eliminate him. So uh, our boys are starting to claw something back here as it's currently 2-1 with regards to falls. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's going... You, you can see during the match, it's, going, it's telling the story of like who is going to win this. It's not just all one squash team... Or one like um, one team just absolutely decimating the team. I like the way this is paced. Yeah, as as do I. And again, uh, Sheffield gets himself on quite a bit of a run as our truth comes in to try and uh, even the odds a little bit and uh, misses an axe kick by Miles, causing Sheffield to hit another lariat to eliminate our truth. So. Eight minutes in and we've had two men gone from both teams. So we can really see something starting to happen here, can't we? Absolutely, right. And as I was watching this, I was thinking, John Morrison looks weird with that kind of half beard that he had, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. It was it was quite an odd look for him, really. Yeah, t- yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, talking of weird looks, uh, we we get a guy that changes his character as, as much as most people change their underpants as Chris Jericho comes in. Uh, but Sheffield hits a really nice press slam to neutralise him, giving the time for Barrett to come in, who gets a few shots in on his former pro before David Otunga comes in uh, for his customary time to stink up the place. Uh, but mercifully, Barrett realises that we need a real hero in this match and he comes back in to take the brunt of Chris Jericho's offence before Bret Hart tags in to start working Heath Slater over with punches, punches and more punches, which was yeah. uh, through no fault of his own, the only offensive manoeuvres that Hart could do at this point um but then hart manages to get in a body slam followed by an elbow drop and an atomic drop followed by more punches before bret hart turns back the clock and applies what is still a lovely looking sharpshooter after all these years but a chair gets thrown into the ring uh, but luckily hart grabs it in time and he manages to hit the nexus's big heater sheffield in the ribs and back prompting him to be eliminated. And while this is a bit of a cheap way to give the Nexus the advantage, it does make sense because you couldn't really do a lot with Brett at this time. And he is also looking to avenge their earlier attack. So for both reasons, I think it is the right thing to do with this. Me too, mate. And it's just, um, I mean, he's not like he was going to go in there and take six Canadian destroyers and, and like a steel chair shot to the head. This was a smart way. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you, mate. Yeah, it, it, it totally is. And um, again, I know that this is pretty much the end of the modern day Bret Hart era in WWE. And I, I've got to get this out here now. A lot of people say that it wasn't a good idea for Brett to come back. But I think if you grew up at a time where Brett Hart was the prominent performer and you saw him go out of the company the first time the way that he did, I think this was quite a prominent thing for Brett to do in order to first off make his return and then go out again the right way rather than you know yeah. being made to look a scapegoat for something. So I can understand why people don't like this, but at the same time, if people like the Bret Hart return, well, snap, because so did I. Yeah, and I did as well. Yeah, I, I will be honest. I love TNA slash Impact to the day that I die, but there was a certain side that I was on and uh, during the Bret Hart return slash... Hogan debut and it was firmly in the Bret Hart return and that's not even anything against Hogan it's just that I no. did have my preferences yeah of course I mean um, the, th the funny thing about that is uh, this is in the very early days of um, well Twitter it was 2010 but I remember um, somebody pointing out that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were the TNA tag team champions as, at the same time that Bret Hart was the United States champion in WWE and it was like, is this 1998 again? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's it. Uh, and again, it was it was nice that Hart got a bit of prominence, really, and that yeah. he wasn't just a figurehead. You know, they they tried to do what they could with him, and and he was very obliging because he could have said no to all this, but he put his yeah. trust in the fact that people would look after him. And you know, I think that's quite nice from a guy that did his best to look after all of his opponents as well. It was it was quite fitting, really. 
It really was, mate. And after that, he only had two more matches, and they were tag team matches. And it was like, so this was a a big pay per view. His this was his final pay per view match. And um, yeah, when you think of Bret Hart, um, the main thing is like you don't want it to be shrouded in that sad Goldberg kick to the head or the Montreal Screwjob. This, like you said, it was a nice ending. It absolutely was. And then, sadly, we get something of an ending for Skip Sheffield as Jericho comes back in against Sheffield and hits a curd breaker. Edge then comes in and hits a spear on Sheffield and then pins him to eliminate him around the 13-minute mark. And I've got to say at the moment, you could really see that the company had high hopes for Ryan Reeves since it took weaponry and several finishes in order to put away a guy that had got rid of three opponents prior to him being eliminated. Yeah, it really could, mate. But we then get to four on four, and Justin Gabriel comes into the ring with a boot to the face by Edge. We then get a running shoulder tackle by Edge onto Gabriel against the ropes, but Gabriel manages to get a back elbow to the head before Edge gets a flapjack for two. Uh, So Edge and Gabriel are doing a, a lot of back and forth before Slater comes back in to send Edge into the turnbuckles, prompting Barrett to come in and basically step on Edge's head. There's no more way of putting it before slapping on a chin lock. Uh, but Edge manages to fight back and then Barrett manages to fight back with a neck breaker before Rotunga comes back in for a good laugh. Um, but Edge manages to block all of his slow plodding offence and hit a DDT. Jericho then comes in uh, and hits two shoulder tackles, a kick and a running bulldog to Rotunga before landing a very impressive lion salt with the fans cheering him on. Jericho then goes for the walls of Jericho, prompting Otunga to tap out in approximately 19 minutes. And this is very much a match that would not look out of place at the Survivor Series, really, with all these quick eliminations, would it? No, absolutely not. Um, But just fantastic. It's just all about the storytelling. It certainly is. And talking of storytelling, this is where we start getting uh, involvement from a lot of our principal players on Team WWE as uh, Jericho ends up taking quite a few knocks through no fault of his own. Uh, He accidentally runs into Cena, uh, causing Cena to be knocked off the apron. But Heath Slater capitalises with a neckbreaker on Jericho during all the distraction to pin him. And again, it's a massive scalp for Slater as well. Uh, This was back when they were taking him relatively seriously as well. Uh, So, yeah, I I can't say that I wasn't a fan of this elimination because it was really cool to see our favourite get a a notable win here. It really was, mate. And it's that in particular and the edge elimination, as we um, talk about the aftermath of this match, we're going to see that it has is that's they did that for a reason. It makes so much sense afterwards. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, and this is where things start to fall apart as mm. Edge and Cena start to argue about who's going to go back in next. Uh, with Cena pointing out that he's the freshest man, he hasn't even been in the match yet. Uh, but this prodges Edge to shove him. Uh, so Cena does as he's told and lets Edge get in. And Slater responds with the roll-up of death on Edge to eliminate him as well. Uh, so while it was a bit 
cheap. You can tell that they're trying to tell a story here as, you know, Edge has been appealing to a lot of these guys' greater natures here. But the whole point is, this is a mixed team of faces and heels, isn't it? Mm. Definitely, mate. And it's like, it's just, if you look at John Cena's, uh, two of his most prominent rivals are Chris Jericho and Edge, especially within the last six years or uh, four years, so um, leading up to that. And it was like, yeah, these guys, like you could see why, why that argument was happening. And ultimately it cost Edge uh, an elimination. It does. And he shows his ongoing camaraderie to Team WWE by spearing Cena off the ropes and onto the floor into the waiting feet of Jericho, who kicks Cena in the ribs so they've obviously blamed cena for their eliminations uh but there's also you know if you are reading the dirt sheets at this time could they potentially be getting their digs in on him after arguing backstage about the eventual finish of this match yeah that's what i was gonna say is like that i mean we'll get into that after this match after we break down this match but yeah i mean it makes all the sense in the world it really does it certainly does. Uh, so, guys, if you're keeping up with us, um, it is currently three members of Nexus versus two members of WWE. So Gabriel rolls Cena into the ring with Cole complaining about how if the Miz was there, then maybe WWE would have a chance while Barrett is working over Cena with punches. Cena, of course, fights back, but Barrett hits him with a clothesline to knock him down. Gabriel then comes in with a DDT on Cena, and this is where we start getting a lot of that really annoying bickering between the commentators, thanks to Cole's annoying commentary. Although I can't really say that I noticed a lot of it, as at the time I had BBC Sounds coverage of Glastonbury on in the background and was listening to Guns N' Roses' awesome three-hour set. So it was more than drowning out whatever guff Michael Cole was coming out with. Oh yeah, definitely. That would have that would um, be a lot better, more preferable to listen to than uh, Michael Cole. It certainly was. Uh, we, we also got a nice call back to cold cuts here as Barrett hit the Aaron Aguilera special, aka the sidewalk slam, onto Cena. Uh, but of course, Cena is totally fine and lands a suplex on. <laughs> Barrett, while Curl says his most prominent line of the night that the entire future of the company could be on Daniel Bryan's shoulder, but there was nothing at stake in the match at all, really, was there? This was really just a match. Yeah, exactly. I think Michael Cole a little bit overstating it there. <laughs> exactly, but Bryan does eventually tag in to do his duty, hitting a German suplex on Slater and a running dropkick before working him over with kicks to the chest and a running clothesline. Bryan then runs the ropes and hits a suicide dive to take Slater out on the floor before hitting a missile dropkick to Slater in the ring, but Slater avoids a kick, but Brian then cinches in the label lock to make Slater tap out at 29 minutes into the match. And again, Brian needs to shine, so I'm not massively angry at this elimination. Me too, mate. But while the referee is helping Slater out of the ring, the Miz runs down with his Money in the Bank briefcase and attacks Brian with it. Uh, but the referee never saw it, and Barrett covers Brian to eliminate him. So this was really to set up the next chapter in the ongoing feud between Brian and his former pro. But again, I love the story behind it, so I don't hate this either. 
No, and it was a perfect way of getting um, Brian out of the match as well. It certainly was. Uh, so we are now down to two versus one as Cena is left to fight against Barrett and Gabriel, who is working Cena over with punches, followed by a corner splash. But Cena avoids a second splash attempt, hits two shoulder tackles and a spinning slam before a five-knuckle shuffle is hit to Gabriel and Barrett tags in with punches to Cena's head. Barrett and Gabriel stomp a mud hole on Cena against a turnbuckle before a big boot knocks Cena out of the ring. Gabriel removes the mats at ringside to expose the concrete before Barrett picks up Cena and lands a DDT on the concrete before rolling him back into the ring. Gabriel tags in, sets up for the 450 splash off the top rope. But Cena has obviously picked up the six Chaos Emeralds and every golden ring in the Mega Drive classic Sonic the Hedgehog as he moves out of the way and covers Gabriel to eliminate him around 35 minutes into the match. And this, Danny, is the moment that I feared. <laughs> I mean, here we are, Chris. We're finally at that moment. But I want to ask you um, afterwards how you would have ended this. But yeah. That's absolutely fine. I will happily talk about that. But first of all, we will look into how this match actually ended. So Barrett comes into the ring. While Cena, who is always the fresh man, regardless of what you do to him, trips him up and slaps on an STF worse than Eric Watts could ever land. And Barrett taps out, ending the match in favour of... It's not even Team WWE for John Cena because he's always benefited at 35 minutes and 15 seconds. So, Danny, um, let's take a pause from the action and talk about the main issue of this match. And I'm changing his middle name now. John (laughs) Bastard Cena. (laughs) I'm in fully agreement with that. I mean, yeah, this has been... A bane in a lot of wrestling fans. I mean, John Cena gets um, harassed with questions about this a lot on social media, and I think on some interviews. And he's always kind of palmed it off and said things like, "In that particular moment, it was too much. I think if I presented it another way, it could have been a little more palatable." But I can't change the television show. It was out of my hands. I've never had the power to do that. And that's something I don't do. If you look at the laundry list of my opponents, you can tell that it's exactly how I operate. So it's a lot of deviating, a lot of um, passing the heat. Um, and it's like, we know exactly what happened, John Cena. And Chris Fellis gave you a middle name that I will now call you. Uh, forever because (laughs) you did the dirty on the nexus and this is the thing mate because i i enjoy john cena as a wrestler i would even say that i like him but in the early 2010s john cena was a bastard uh there are there are more than enough cena tales out there from guys that shared a locker room with him for him to be confirmed as a certified bastard but I hated the finish to this match because it should have been a win for the Nexus. But instead, it was another showcase for Super Cena to come on through the other side. 
it was ridiculous for them to do this major spot like a DDT on the concrete if he was going to get two eliminations in quick succession to win the match. So you asked me how I would have ended this match. Yeah. For me, the right decision would have been a win by the Nexus. I think anybody that understands wrestling booking would have had the heels go over, but WWE got it wrong. Now, apparently, as we've alluded to, it was due to Cena getting the finish changed, which we'll get to in a minute. But if I could use another comparison of another invading stable from wrestling's past, as I've alluded to, um, you'll appreciate this as well, because you are currently looking at this on Nitro Nights. But do you know why the New World Order was so successful as a group in the eyes of the fans? Why? Well... At the first attempt of taking on the company that they were rallying against, which would have been probably the War Games match at Four Ball 1996, if you consider when the group was established. Yeah. It was also two months after the stable formed, and they won in order to cement their dominance in the eyes of the fans. They did not end up losing to Sting, who the team finally got behind and made to look like massive losers. Whereas in the WWE, they made their new invaders look like massive losers. Yeah, bang on. Bang on with that, because it's just like, why did you just do this? (laughs) I mean, we know Vince McMahon loves... I don't know why, but he just loves to send the crowds home happy. I guess because he wants them to come back. He doesn't want them to be depressed leaving a show. But you're sacrificing, like the people in the ring, you're sacrificing story over mm. attendance. And it's just such a shame because I would have put Wade Barrett getting a strong win over John Cena. Fine, you can eliminate the Nexus or whatever, but I think Wade Barrett, standing tall to end a pay-per-view would have been the ultimate thing i think also because SummerSlam 2010 as you were speaking i was scanning the card i was like i don't remember any of this um but it looked like a very weak main event scene i mean you had Rey mysterio yeah. and kane um going 18 minutes you had randy Orton and sheamus um I just didn't really look very like this could end the pay-per-view. So, yeah, I would have had Wade Barrett standing tall and then you just see the rest of the Nexus coming out and just standing over Cena and continuing the story. Exactly. I mean, especially when you look at what they do between Barrett and Cena in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. They, they go with that. So why not start it here? It gives everything else after this a whole new gravitas rather than it just being damage control. Uh, But there are a number of people that make the case that John Bastard Cena was the reason (laughs) for this finish. Um, Edge and Jericho met together for Talkies Jericho, where they were both adamant that they had fought for the Nexus and Barrett in particular to go over. But Cena had insisted on getting the win in the Super Cena way that we got it. This claim was further corroborated by Justin Gabriel on one of the rare occasions that he actually spoke from an interview with Wrestling Inc. in 2015, stating that if he and his stablemates weren't new to the company, they would have fought more for the finish to be changed. And he even hints that Cena may have gotten into the ears of management regarding the Nexus imploding as a stable earlier than they ended up doing. 
Uh, Ryan Reeves and Wade Barrett have also chipped in in the past, with Barrett in particular saying that he knew the lads were being lied to when he was told the finish was changed to send the fans home happy. Uh, But at the same time, Edge, Jericho and Gabriel all state that Cena had realised the error of his ways and apologised for his actions, which Cena himself sort of confirmed in a rare Q&A session in 2017, which I think is the quote that you gave us, where he admits that he was wrong to make the call while not necessarily taking the blame for the decision being made. So, in my opinion, Danny... Cena would have been the one to take the pin following a 450 splash from Gabriel and then a wasteland by Barrett. Now, maybe there would have been shenanigans still, like maybe Jericho could have revealed that the Nexus was his idea and that he was a double agent in the team, but what we got made the rest of the Nexus story limp to a slow finish for me when we should have got a future world champion in Barrett established and the Nexus cemented as a serious force. Amen. You very well said, mate. And but yeah, I mean, I, I with all of that, I can definitely see John Cena apologising because in the next couple of months booking, it actually comes off like he knew he did wrong, but it just never changes the fact that SummerSlam 2010 will always be a still. I hate quoting Dave Meltzer, but it will always be a dud. Yeah, it really will. Like. Even as good as this match was, the finish tarnishes the event as a whole. And it wasn't a good event to begin with, was it? No, absolutely not. And um, yeah, it's just one pay-per-view I've never gone back and watched. No, it's it's one I've not had a great interest in either, to be honest. I've I've watched the one match that matters and even that's disappointing. So why would I want to watch the rest of it? Yeah. But the WWE would go into serious damage control in order to keep the Nexus as a serious threat to WWE. So on the post-SummerSlam Raw, in order to find the weak links of the group, the Nexus invoked their SummerSlam rematch clause and competed in a series of seven one-on-one matches against Team WWE, except for Bret Hart, who was replaced by Orton with the stipulation that whichever Nexus member lost their match, they would be exiled from the group. Darren Young, bless him, was the only Nexus member who lost as he failed to defeat his identical twin, John Cena, in the main event. (laughs) (laughs) As a result, the Nexus would attack Young with their respective finishers and officially exile him from the group. At a WWE Live event in Hawaii on August the 18th, 2010, Skip Sheffield broke his ankle during a tag team match where he teamed with a Tunga against the Hart Dynasty, putting him out of action for the next two years, leaving the Nexus with only five active members leading into September. Then at Night of Champions on September the 19th, Barrett used his guaranteed championship match that he won for winning NXT in a six-pack elimination challenge for Sheamus' WWE Championship, but was eliminated by Orton, who later won the match and the title. So not only does the group's fearless leader fall at his next hurdle, Daniel, he's also leading a smaller group of absolute losers. Yeah, and then... Such a shame. It's, it, it just you can definitely see is is turning into Weetabix, isn't it? <laughs> it's just coming out soggy. 
Absolutely, that is that is the best way to put it, buddy. Uh, but there's only one thing to do if a storyline isn't quite clicking in WWE in 2010s, and it's the well that they would continually dredge from from the next several years. Involve John Bastard Cena. <laughs> Definitely, that's the way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. So at Hell in a Cell on October the 3rd, Barrett and Cena would face each other in a match with the stipulation that if Barrett won, Cena would have to join the Nexus. But if Cena won or any other Nexus member got involved, the group would be permanently disbanded. But thanks to interference from Husky Harris and Michael McGillicutty, two rookies from the second season of NXT, who would later join the Nexus on the October 25th edition of Raw, Barrett managed to win the match and keep the group going, forcing Cena to join the Nexus. So, in all actuality, Husky Harris and Michael McGillicutty are two more than able replacements for Skip Sheffield and Darren Young, as both actually had an upside at this time, while both Young and Sheffield needed working on. Um, and I know that we aren't really showcasing this match on the episode, but I've got to give Michael Cole a lot of credit for talking up Wade Barrett in a really credible way, rather than just dismissing everything that Jerry Lawler and Matt Stryker had said. Yeah, yeah, no, I fully agreed with you. It's, I think there's definitely improvements being made behind the scenes, and you can see it. Um, I just have to say, Husky Harris and Michael McGillicuddy are two of the worst wrestling names you can ever <laughs> produce for a wrestling company. But um, I love the the intent that, yeah, we have to get more guys here. Um, yeah, just... Um, but that's what I was going to ask you. Is, would you have put Wade Barrett clean over here without the interference? Or do you think it didn't matter? In this instance, I think you kind of need the interference because they've they've made such a big deal about the fact that, you know, the Nexus can't be involved and so on and so forth. So I think they needed something because obviously the Nexus were down two members and they yeah. needed to be strengthened again. So in this instance, while I don't always like a swear finish like this, in this instance, I think it makes a lot of sense. I got you. But Cena would be far from the model member of Nexus and would attack Michael Tarver the following night on Raw following a tag team match. But Barrett would state that Cena actually did him a favour as he was planning on getting rid of Tarver anyway, implying that he was no longer a member. Whereas in reality, Michael Tarver had a nagging groin injury and was later released from his contract in June 2011. So rest in peace, Michael Tarver. We barely cared to know thee. <laughs> it's just not looking good. I mean, you put it perfectly on Twitter the other day, Chris, about um, the Nexus having an amazing two-month run, a very strong. And as we're breaking down here, there's injuries, there's bad decisions, there's poor booking. Um, it's just not... It's just... The further we're going, the more depressing it is actually <laughs> it is i mean there's there's one very clear-cut story right now which is yeah. barrett versus cena and they're kind of using what's left of the nexus storyline to like help further that along there but but really if if this is the best that they can do with the group then they should have just split them up after SummerSlam, really yeah yeah absolutely 
But the anonymous Raw general manager would pipe up and state that Cena had to honour the stipulations of the Hell in a Cell match and take orders from Barrett or be fired. But later that night, Barrett instead ordered Cena to help him win the number one contenders battle royal for Orton's WWE Championship at Bragging Rights. And as the match came down to Cena and Barrett, Barrett won the match after Cena eliminated himself. At Bragging Rights on October the 24th, the Nexus would win their first championships in WWE when Cena and Otunga defeated Cody Rhodes and Drew McIntyre to win the WWE Tag Team Championship, which was the next match I selected for us to talk about, not particularly as a showcase for the awesomeness of the Nexus, or lack of, but more because I really liked the dashing ones. Yeah, yeah. When I saw this on the um, message that you sent, I was like... I can't remember Rhodes and McIntyre teaming at all, but man, were they great because they really were. They were, and they had that instant chemistry straight away as well, Danny. And uh, I I also chose this match for the opening reveal of the challenges to the Dashing Ones as well because Barrett comes out and states that he had ordered Cena not to fail and bring home the tag team titles. And there's this real, like, puppet master dynamic now between Barrett and Cena. And... Like I say, they're they're kind of using the Nexus to limp it along, but I, I actually liked this Barrett and Cena storyline, to be honest. I, I just didn't feel like it needed the Nexus to be part of the story, to be fair. No, I'm fully agreed with you, mate. And it's like, this is um, this is where I feel like John Cena's making up for that SummerSlam debacle because he's basically just... He's the guy that's on the losing end here. And... Um, Wade Barrett is this completely new guy to WWE fans and it's like yes he's in charge of like the biggest star in WWE and he's telling him what to do what not to do I can imagine a load of like child fans that um, that watched WWE at this point were just fuming at um, at uh, Wade Barrett just like we was at uh, like when we was children, and we'd we'd um, fume at the um, the the ultimate heels that were doing something to um, our favourites, and it's like wow, this was just brilliant. And then you blur the lines by having David Otunga and John Cena wrestle two heels as well. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it was to be honest, and there, there was a real dynamic going on between Otunga and Cena as well because, like. Atunga had no intention of getting involved in this match and he would he would be forcing Cena to do his bidding, but like Cena would still get his digs in here and there, so yeah. kind of um Atunga insists on starting the match and Cena lets him, but obviously Atunga's getting his ass tanned and uh, <laughs> you know, it, the match nearly ends quite quickly with near falls from Drew. Uh a lot of double teaming on Atunga as well. Uh so Atunga then decides to blame Cena for this and quite angrily tags him in. And then Cena pretty much runs away with the match. And again, while it played like a a Super Cena match, in this instance, I thought the dynamic was really clever because it shows that the Nexus actually needs Cena uh, for for his skill and what have you because, you know, they're very new to this and don't know what to expect, whereas Cena's taking the full match in his stride. And it was actually really clever, to be honest. Yeah. It was something brand new, I found, because this is John Cena basically just at the mercy of um, Wade Barrow. Forget the Nexus, mm. even though they're there. He's yes. like at Wade Barrow's beck and call, and like, I'm just loving it. 
as am I, and it's it's great as well. So like seen as always the one that has to kind of drag Atunga out here, leading to our usual Cena comeback and an STF which finishes Cody off clean and Cena brings the titles to the Nexus. So while it played more like a TV angle rather than a pay-per-view match, um, especially at the end as Cena celebrates by giving Cena an attitude adjustment, it's not really a bad little match by all accounts, and it helps to keep this angle going of Cena not really being invested in being part of the Nexus. But uh, what did you think to have John Cena join the Nexus in the first place, Danny? Really liked it. That's what I was saying before. I I feel like this was him going to management and saying, "Oh, how can I make this this um, angle a bit?" It's basically very much like the NWO when they had the fake Sting, but for that moment uh, when I was watching it, I actually thought Sting joined the NWO. I was like, but the, instead of him doing it um, reluctantly, John Cena is in that reluctant position, but he's like like, I've got to get through this, I've got to survive, I've got to find out a way of this, so you just, you relate with John Cena a lot in this, and you're like, oh man, but you feel for him, so yeah, all in all, it's really good, did you enjoy this? I did, to be honest, like, don't, don't get me wrong, I I do have my problems with it, because in, yeah. in my opinion, a Nexus that was kept strong with the SummerSlam win, and then forcing Cena to, against his will to do their bidding would have had more impact. But at the same time, we're getting a franchise player here who has probably realised that he was part of the problem in the first place with this Nexus looking like they were, like doing his best to build them back up again. So I don't completely hate it, but I do know how it could be better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the main event of bragging rights would see uh, Wade Barrett defeat Orton via disqualification. But this time it was caused by Cena, who, as a result, was chosen by Barrett as his own special guest referee for his rematch against Orton at Survivor Series, declaring that unless Barrett won the title, Cena would be fired. But if Barrett defeated Orton, Cena would be relieved of all responsibilities to the Nexus. Then on the post-bragging rights Raw, Justin Gabriel and Heath Slater won the WWE Tag Team Championships after Barrett ordered Atunga to allow Slater to pin him. So we start getting a bit of a dissension tease here, mate, with uh, Barrett lauding it over the perceived second-in-command constantly and... What did you make of this dynamic between Atunga and Barrett, of the kind of being a, a bit of a faction break there? I think it was very smart. If you look at the final two um, who were in contention of winning NXT, so you'd always feel like uh, Otunga has it in for Wade Barrett um, behind the scenes as well, because he's like, I should have won that. So I think it was very, very logical. Yeah, I, I think so as well. And I, I do like a, a good power struggle in my factions. Um, and it seemed like a Tunga would as well, as he would not like this insubordination at all and would end up leading Harris, McGillicutty, Gabriel and Slater to a second invasion of SmackDown, interrupting a match between Edge and Alberto Del Rio. But the Nexus was then defeated in the main event in a five-on-five tag team match by Edge, Del Rio, Big Show, Kane and Kofi Kingston. 
Now, Barrett did not approve of Otunga's decision to lead the Nexus to SmackDown and, as a result, forced him to defend his spot in the group the following week, where on the November 12, 2010 edition of SmackDown, thanks to interference from Kane, Otunga would defeat Edge in a lumberjack match to keep his spot in the Nexus. Now, this would seemingly encourage Otunga to fall in line in the run-up to the big Survivor Series match, but I think an extended run of Otunga looking to usurp Barrett as leader would have been fun, Danny, instead of just being a way to fill in for a few weeks. Yeah, absolutely, man. And it, it would have added more, um, basically, it would just add, add more to this storyline as well, but um, they had their plans, and it was just like... I don't want to say they gave up with Otunga at this point, but um, they just had their direction for Barrett and Cena and things like that. They did, and don't get me wrong, you know, quite a prominent figure would go on to take over the Nexus in the future, but I think it would have been quite interesting post-Survivor Series if Otunga would force a leadership coup based on Barrett's failure to win the big one and his willingness to force his agenda on his teammates instead. Uh, But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, So what did you think to David Otunga as a potential leader of the Nexus? It could have happened. I think, if not him on his own, maybe him and maybe Heath Slater... But I I can't see him really in a massive leadership role. But it could have happened, um, if even if it was for a month or something like that, before someone else takes over. Um, I don't know why, but I just don't see him as like a giant nasty heel, as I would with Wade Barrett. I think, yeah, I think at that point I don't think he could have pulled it off. But I think it could have happened anyway. What about you, mate? I could have maybe seen him as the type of leader that's a mouthpiece rather than someone like Barrett that kind of, you know, he says what he says, but he can also back it up with with his, you know, with his physicality. I don't think Otunga would have been a convincing leader in that way, but I could see him more as a a Stokely Hathaway type, i.e. leading a charge of wrestlers, but not actually getting involved in ring. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this all takes us to our final spotlight match of this episode, which is for the WWE World Heavyweight title and is from Survivor Series 2010. Our challenger, Wade Barrett, faces the champion Randy Orton with special guest referee John Cena, with a stipulation that if Wade Barrett fails to win the match and the title, John Cena will be fired. But if Barrett was to win the title, John Cena would be free to leave the Nexus. And this match was broadcast on November the 21st, 2010, a.k.a. my 31st birthday. And what oh. a gift. <laughs> Indeed, what a gift. Only if uh, Wade won. But no, that's a, it's always good to know um, important wrestling events happened on your birthday. Um, the only one that I can think of is Ric Flair competed in his first ever TLC match against Edge for me. So, <laughs> nice. Well, that's 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 important too. So, yeah, yeah. very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Orton takes control early with a running clothesline, followed by forearms to the chest. Orton would then punch Barrett against the turnbuckles repeatedly. So, Cena pulled Orton away, and Barrett hit a boot to Orton's face to take control before stomping a mud hole in Orton against the turnbuckles. So, Cena pulls Barrett away, and Orton capitalises with a drop kick. 
Orton then kicks Barrett out of the ring for some WWE-style walk and brawl, with Barrett taking control as he sends Orton repeatedly into the side of the apron. Cena isn't just counting them out of the ring, though, as Barrett whips Orton into the steel steps. Barrett, with a hard whip, sends Orton into the turnbuckle as Wade stays in control with a headlock, knee to the ribs, and a kick to the face. Barrett then remembers that he's not in Brit Rest anymore, so he needs to apply a headlock, which Orton counters with a belly-to-back suplex. Orton hits two clotheslines and a snap power slam, with the crowd getting into the match more. A running clothesline from Orton sends Barrett over the top to the floor before Barrett rallies back enough to send Orton back first into the ring post. So we're getting a real lot of punishment here, which is what I like in title matches like this, in that both men are really giving their all. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's supposed to be a struggle. And yeah, this, I mean, for someone like Wade Barrett, he's been built up over the last couple of months. And it's like he is doing really, really he's holding his own, isn't he? He is, and he, he really is here, and he's, he's giving Cena a lot of grief for kind of calling the match down the middle, and he's certainly kind of giving off about, you know, two and a half counts and two counts and things, uh, especially getting in Cena's face to complain about the pin when the boss man slam only gets two counts. So Orton hits a draping DDT off the ropes, with Barrett then bailing to the floor, so Orton would then deck him with a clothesline. Barrett then hits Orton with a knee to the head when Orton was trying to get back into the ring before Barrett hits waist slam and covers Orton for two before Orton gets his right hand on the bottom rope. This prompts another complaint from Barrett to Cena while Cena noted that he saw the hand on the ropes. Barrett would shove Cena in the chest which drew a big pop from the crowd before Cena shoved Barrett back and Orton capitalised with an RKO, leading to the pinfall win at 15 minutes and 10 seconds. And with that, Danny, we never saw John Cena again. (laughs) Oh, man, if only. (laughs) (laughs) But no, sadly, he didn't just go off to Hollywood. But um, in all fairness... Not just because it was Barrett, but I was ready for a new face as champion and there would have been no better way after everything that Barrett had to put up with than to build him as the guy, than to have him win in whatever way and then have the raw general manager state that Cena was fired anyway, especially since we're going to reverse the decision within a few weeks. Yeah, so true, mate. And... Just um, the next night of Raw, John Cena cuts a pretty amazing promo, to be honest. Um, I think it's towards, I think it's um, to close the show. And like, it's a very heartfelt um, promo. Have you seen this one, Chris? Yeah, it was, it was really cool, actually. I, I loved how he he leads the crowd in a let's go Cena, Cena sucks chant as well, doesn't he? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, as a as a match, it was really average. But as a moment and uh, a post moment on the following episode of Raw, uh, yeah. I I think it was really good. Even though yeah. sadly it doesn't last, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's the, such a shame because that promo basically means nothing because he was back the next week, wasn't he? <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> but um, looking at how this match ended. 
Um, it's probably just as well that Barrett didn't win the belt this night because the following night on Raw was the episode where the Miz would cash in his Money in the Bank briefcase on Orton to win his first title. So at least Barrett wasn't a transitional champion. Yeah, that's one good thing about it. Yeah, if there's any positives to draw from that, I mean, it would have been perfect to have uh, him win the belt on your birthday in the <laughs> same year that he debuted. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. At least he's yeah. not like Stan, Stan the Man Stasiak. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That. Oh, that's a that's a callback and a half there. Uh, but yes, um, despite being fired by Barrett, Cena would continue to show up on Raw as a ticket holder in the subsequent weeks, causing interference in the Nexus's matches, including costing Slater and Gabriel the WWE Tag Team Championships to Santino Morella and Vladimir Kozlov in a fatal four-way tag team elimination match on the December 6th, 2010 edition of Raw, while later on on that night, Cena would inform the Nexus that his attacks on them would only stop on the condition that Barrett rehired him causing a mutiny within the Nexus in the process. As wanting the attacks to stop, Otunga, on behalf of the Nexus, delivered an ultimatum to Barrett that unless he brought Cena back, he would be exiled from the group. So, on the December 13th, 2010 edition of Raw, Barrett rehired Cena for fear of being exiled by the Nexus, but on the condition that Cena faced Otunga in the main event and that Barrett and Cena would settle the score in a chairs match at TLC 2010, which is a match that Cena would win in the main event of all places and then after the match would drop 23 steel chairs from the stage onto Barrett after dispatching the rest of the Nexus. Now, I counted those chairs and while it was excessive, it was definitely 23. Wow, I thought it was much more than that, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Danny, you've got to applaud the fact that Cena has gotten his revenge on that dastardly band of brothers that had actually supported his bid to be reinstated. Exactly, yes, it makes no sense. (laughs) No. um, I forgot to, I did write down something, but it's not on this, but wasn't there a time during all of this that John Cena was going by... Juan Cena on the house show or something, or was it a couple? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and was it performing under a mask? Yes. Yes. Now we never got. I remember seeing pictures of that, but I don't think it ever made it to television, did it? Sadly, no. It it didn't. It it was always post raw things. Uh, but yeah, that that whole thing about not getting to see this character. And the way that he treated his biggest supporters at the end of this match just further reinstates my claim that in 2010, John Cena was a bastard. (laughs) He was. There's no two ways about it. He was just... But I think it's so cool to have that little... um, That visual of the um, steel chairs falling down because much like the first ever time... Well, the well, the untamed Brock Lesnar superplex big show, and they fell through the ring. Well, the ring collapsed. Um, it's something that I hope WWE do not basically bastardize and do it again and again, like they did with that spot with Mark Henry, and have done it with Braun Strowman. I hope this never gets recreated, but I think that's just going to fall on deaf ears, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's probably something that will bring out from time to time rather than every year but yeah for the spectacle that it is you can you can probably see it happening again can't you 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, 2010 ended badly for Wade Barrett, and 2011 would start equally badly for him as well, as on the January 3rd, 2011 edition of Raw, the Nexus ambiguously announced after months of repeated attacks on Cena and the WWE roster that it was under new management, with CM Punk being revealed to be the new leader. He acquired the position after Barrett lost a number one contendership steel cage match involving Orton and Sheamus. Punk, having agreed to fall in line had Barrett successfully won the title shot, teased helping Barrett escape the cage before knocking him off of it. Barrett was subsequently exiled from the Nexus, which would be renamed the New Nexus, in order to distance itself from former leadership. Wow. It's it's over for Barrett, isn't it? And that was the end of his WWE career. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You could, you could argue that, you know, he was never to be seen again. And since the new Nexus is a completely new stable, we don't have to talk about them. And that's the end of the episode. La, 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 much like Albert needs a part two, we will address the new Nexus at some point, even if purely for giggles. Yeah, exactly. And then possibly a part three with the core, if you fancy it. <laughs> well, that is the plan. Uh, you, have, you have heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. This episode will eventually get a part two, and it's literally going to be diverging into two different directions as we see... Wade Barrett trying to take over SmackDown with a new stable featuring former members of the Nexus and a new face while CM Punk forges on Raw to make the new Nexus into his image. So that will be part two of this episode, looking at version two of each respective stable. Uh, but Danny, before we go any further, what did you think to Nexus version one? Very much like you, of the opinion of um, after two months, it kind of just uh, things happened, politics got involved, injuries happened, booking uh, just went haywire. I think they had t had a really bolt, a good bolt of lightning, and it just kind of fizzled out. And it's such a shame because this angle could have gone on for well over a year. Um, I can't see in WWE doing multiple years angles up to what they're doing the bloodline now. I'm saying that, and that's a three year angle. But mm. it's at this point, I couldn't see it. I would just think either they're going to be fed to John Cena or fed to Randy Orton at that point. Um, and it's just, yeah. So it, I think um, through doing this and researching and listening to you, I've now developed the opinion of, yeah, after two months, it was kind of just dead on arrival, um, other than some good moments. But what about you, mate? What did you think about this? So the, the thing with the Nexus is that there's just as many plus points as minuses. So obviously I, I chose to feature this group uh, for this episode because I do have a great fondness for this group and for Wade Barrett as a whole but there, there was a lot of things to consider with this group both good and bad so looking at some of the positives first the, the Nexus proved that 
if WWE felt like it, they could put together a credible threat made up of entirely new acts. So basically, I believe that the Nexus limped so that the shield could run. And all it took was the mere hint of a threat on that final segment of Raw for a new heel menace to be established. And at this point in 2010, WWE could still write a good first chapter. Which then takes me to my second plus point, that WWE could still build a standout performer if it wanted to. In both the good and the bad of this storyline, the constant was that Wade Barrett was the man who pulled the strings. He had everything going for him. He had charisma, a commanding presence, and he could work. And WWE capitalised on that. Atunga could maybe talk better than Wade could in the long run, but Wade is the star here, and we were never made to forget that. And then my third plus point is that those first two months were brilliant, but that brings me round to my first minus point in that the rest of the run was piss poor. The main event of SummerSlam deflated the entire angle to the point that the rest of the story moving forward was plain and simply damage control. And while Cena did his best to lift the angle, the deflating of the angle was his fault in the first place. And in my opinion, and this is what bothers me about the whole thing, he had forgotten what it was like to come up on the main roster and struggle. Because lest we forget that John Cena was the man who was nearly released if Stephanie hadn't heard him rap behind the scenes. Therefore, he really should have tried to be building the Nexus, and particularly Wade Barrett, in order to have some credible opponents for the future, rather than giving us a bevy of lower and mid-card workers by the end of it. Which brings me to my second minus point, as outside of Wade Barrett, nobody else in the Nexus post-Daniel Bryan was really made to be any good. One of the reasons that Barrett stood out like he did is because he was surrounded by a combination of skilled but dull, or the terrible but terrible, And without Barrett in the group, the Nexus would have been doomed from the start. And talking of doomed, for my final minus point, WWE's writing and kowtowing to their egotistical stars killed the threat of the Nexus by August. Cena was at his absolute worst in his anti-Nexus promos and openly defied the advice of his contemporaries to change the finish of the main event at SummerSlam, causing what we got after that to not only be given the respect that it should have got, because the Nexus were no longer a threat. Yeah. Bang on, mate. Bang on. And just for everyone listening, um, you asked uh, me to write down what worked, what didn't work. This was a very easy list because we've just gone over it. So what worked for me throughout this um, couple of months was shock value, creating Wade Barrett as a star, but also, uh, and what didn't work, putting um, Wade Barrett in a stable, did this pigeonhole him, because it was basically the story of his career, that's how WWE put him, I mean, he's best known for being, he was in the core, um, he's in Nexus, and he was in that ridiculous um, League of Nations uh, stable, and it's like, did they see him being able to be a star on his own? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they they obviously had plans for what they wanted to do with the Nexus rookies, but you do sometimes wonder if Barrett had been better off from the start on his own. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had that brilliant run with Bad News Barrett, and it was very, very over, even yeah. if it was in an ironic way or, or whatever. But he was, yeah, I, I really feel... I mean, I'm not sure why he retired, but I really feel he could be a top guy today. He could. I mean, I, I think the issue that he got towards the end is that after the Nexus run, he suddenly got very injury-prone, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it it wouldn't surprise me if he decided to give his body a rest by going for Hollywood, but yeah. he still kept his hand in wrestling one way or another. He just chose to do it through commentary, and I yes. think it's quite smart, really, because he's he's taking advantage of one of the clear gifts that he had, and he's an excellent yeah. commentator on on SmackDown. He really is, and I think he he gives a real a real gravitas to the product. To be fair. He really does, and there's always a joke that's made about um, his commentary that he replaced um, Jim Connett on NWA Power, he replaced uh, somebody on NXT, and then he replaced Pat McAfee on uh, SmackDown, so he's known as the replacement commentator, but I feel like he has enough potential, no matter if WWE sees it or not because they're not putting them on pay-per-views, but I feel he has the potential to be the lead commentator going forward. Definitely. Yeah, he's he's certainly got more going for him than the likes of um, Kevin Patrick. Um, yes. I think, I think Raw might be a bit early for him because there's a bit more scrutiny, but you can certainly see him being there. And, I mean, dare we say, one day he would be the man to replace Michael Cole when he retires. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Uh, but, Danny, we have laughed, we have cried, <laughs> we have almost died. But at the end, I think we should end this episode on a bit of fun. And I opened our Twitter account, as we asked the Meat Siders a few weeks back, to tweet us with their most disappointing factions. Uh, our first one came from Morty, from the always excellent Morty and Fitz show, who chimed in with, it's got to be retribution, surely. It started naff, but they had a chance to turn it around. Remember when Ali was made the leader and he gave all these logical reasons behind things to make them sense, and WWE just ignored it. And I don't think he's wrong there when you look at the participants of retribution. They could have been so much more than they actually were, couldn't they? They really could have, mate, and I think... It was just a case of poor timing because you had the pandemic and um, you had that ridiculous um, arena with all the screens and stuff like that. So you didn't have the live reactions. Hmm. And then you had that weird debut with, where a chainsaw was in the ring. And um, it was like almost like a, a poor version of Nexus coming in and destroying the ring. Um, yeah, that is a, such a shame. But I think Ali was talented. And he's definitely could have been the leader there, but it just fell apart faster than the Nexus. It did. And yeah, it was it was such an odd thing as well, because of all the people to choose to lead this group, like Mustafa Ali is such a likeable character, yeah. um, both in the ring and in real life. And I, I, I just don't think the fans bought it that it could be this type of heel. He could have been a heel, and he debuted as a heel for WWE, but he couldn't have been this type of heel. It just wasn't in him, I don't think. No, no, certainly not. No. Then secondly, my old school chum, Paul Williams, popped up with an absolute banger 
of a deep cut of disappointment, as he chose the menagerie, saying that they had so much potential in TNA and a breakout future world champion in the making, apparently, with uh, with Nux, a.k.a. Mike Knox. Sadly, it wasn't to be. Uh, their music and Taz singing Leggy to Rebel every time she came out will live forever, Danny. Yes, I was uh, I was just getting out of TNA when this stable came around and um, the debut, the, I mean, we, this could be an episode of, on its own of ours, but the debut vignette was amazing. Um, it showed Nux, well, he was called Nux, Mike Nux, um, getting out of a car and ca- carrying this big like overnight bag on his on his um shoulder and going to the town that he grew up in and because it had been flooded and damaged it was like a film it was like something mm. and it was amazing because he had been written off of television in october or november with the aces and eights things so it played into that story of like this man lost his it was probably blatantly ripping off Sons of Anarchy or something it was when someone leaves a biker group and he was trying to rebuild his life with um, Rebel and um, Crazy Steve. And, it, yeah, I would agree with that. It just went nowhere because it just... He had an impressive debut against um, Robbie E. Um, no, Kazarian it was, yeah. And, um, yeah, it just ended up going nowhere because they became like circus guys i mean that's what the stable mm. was about but it just yeah, yeah uh, i'll just run on this forever chris sorry <laughs> no it's fine and i'm i'm sure we will come to it at some point but yeah I, I liked the menagerie as well and yeah i believe that those opening vignettes that were shot entirely in black and white as well weren't they so there was they were quite cinematic really so yeah, yeah i would agree with that and, and again i i am sure we will uh come to talk about them at some point won't we bud yeah, absolutely. Even a, st- a stables episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like even if they get a brief mention, it it'll yeah. still be a worthy mention. Yeah. Uh, and then a a very much loved supporter of the show came up with a good one, as Chris Mangle mentioned that one who quickly failed to live up to anything for him was the pinnacle which was a good idea and a great ending to the MJF Inner Circle storyline, but they were only really created for that feud and actually harmed FTR. And uh, I responded with this, saying that um, I always got the feeling, looking back at this group, that the pinnacle was only really involved to benefit one person, and that was MJF. And it's a shame, really, because, yeah, I think it put guys like FTR and even Sean Spears to an extent, I think it put them back. Yeah, it absolutely sacrificed them. And Tully Blanchard um, was a great figurehead for that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. I mean, yeah, he was He was the shining light on that, really. But, yeah, like, at, at one point, even he got annoyed with it all, didn't he? So yeah. it was a shame, really. And I know the, the bald one in FTR did have a few things to say about the inner circle on that yeah. terrible podcast that he had with um <laughs> with that terrible human being Matt Coon. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was it was a massive disappointment. It could have been AEW's yeah. answer to the four horsemen, but yeah. Instead it was AEW's answer to Fortune, really. Yes, and that's a great comparison. And I'm just thinking this is the well, they still are like crazy heavy on stables, but at this time they will massively just overblown in stables and they had uh, a face-off between 
Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson in the ring that um I think it was during the pandemic era and um it was excellent. Yeah, that that little face off was worth the worth it for the whole thing. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, completely. But yeah, um that was another disappointing one and then um, we actually have a disappointing gentleman in a lot of these comments, as uh, as will keep coming around, as the normally good value for money Matt Butler, a.k.a. Trey Butler on Twitter, came up with the first of one of his massively offensive takes when he said that while the storyline was good in places, prepare yourself for this, Danny, yeah. Aces and Eights were a pretty shit faction. Ooh. Apparently, Danny, the reveal of the members got worse and worse, with Knox, Garrett Bischoff, Gallows and Briscoe being, and I quote, utter bollocks, while Bully Ray admittedly came out of the storyline a main eventer, the rest equals Jobsville. Now, you can go off a person quite quickly, Danny, can't you? You certainly can. I mean, I see his point about, like, I mean, it wasn't the best debuts that you could make for a reveal, especially when you consider um, Garrett Bischoff and Wes Briscoe. But I think they were done so well that that really didn't matter who was in it. Um, yeah. I think there was enough storytelling in that. I mean, you had the whole gut check thing that had been going back for months where... Al Snow was kidnapped, these little um, uh, kind of instances where, like, Al Snow was kidnapped, so that's why Dilo Brown took over the gut check and cleared um, West Briscoe and Garrett Bischoff. Uh, uh, no, it was West Briscoe from, uh, for winning, so he would get a contract. You had little storylines like that, and it's just massively underrated. And, um, yeah, uh, I would I would 100% disagree with uh, Mr. Butler there. Yeah, that, that makes two of us. And as well, uh, another thing with the group is that they, they let things breathe in the beginning. Like, they, they didn't announce the first, like, unmasked member for weeks, did they? So, um, I, I mean, I'll admit that it ended poorly, but I think it started very well, which is probably the story of this full episode, isn't it, really? But, yeah, I I think there was a lot more to enjoy with Aces and Eights than, than Dislike. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But Matt would then go on to piss all over my mid-90s chips with uh, this announcement, that the Million Dollar Corporation was the blueprint for a shit faction, uh, in that they had talent in Bam Bam Bigelow, 123Kid and IRS, but less so in Bundy, Volkov and Tatanka, although his heel turn on Luger was good. And I'm saying this right now, the Million Dollar Corporation are one of the greatest things to happen to the new generation, and I will not have this controversial insubordination. I need to research about Million Dollar Corporation, but from what I've seen, I really enjoyed seeing King Kong Bundy um, have, sort of have a career resurgence he did there, didn't he? Because um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd be known as like one of the guys that one of the monsters that Hulk Hogan would have to battle, and here he came back. All I, I remember of that because I've seen a few roars where they show up is seeing um, King Kong Bundy with handfuls of cash. And yes, I would agree. Um, I have studied that um, Tatanka and Lex Luger feud, and that is 
that is something that just blows. I mean, even Matt said it himself. That was good um, because there's no denying that that was probably Tatanka's career highlight. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Like I, I was a massive Tatanka fan, but he actually took him to turn heel to show what kind of rage he had because he wasn't the best of wrestlers, but there was just something about his character. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But that's something we can look at for um, another episode of uh, One Man's Meat is um, a Million Dollar Corporation because I really know little about it. So Yeah, well, we can and we will. Um, another group we could look at comes from Dan Griffin, who proves to be a king amongst men with his pick, saying that the League of Nations has to be up there as a disappointing faction, in that you had Barrett, Seamus and Rusev, who were all capable of being top guys, but never had the right motivation or story. Uh, the group was just thrown together, given a name and mucked about a bit. Oh, and Del Rio was there. So I can't say I disagree with his assessment, to be honest. No, it definitely deserves to be on that list of disappointing factions. I mean, all I remember about them, if you say League of Nations, is um, the WrestleMania where they got squashed by Stone Cold, Mick Foley and Shawn Michaels. And yes. I think the New Day were somehow involved as well. And if that's all you can remember, a fan can remember of your entire stable, then that's not a good thing, is it? <laughs> Exactly, not at all. Uh, so yeah, they they promised much, but through no fault yeah. of their own, little was delivered. And Who, talking was of the leader, the leader. Well, I think it was agreed that there wasn't one. Oh yeah, yeah. They were kind of all fighting for one purpose, weren't they? Something yeah. like that, anyway. Oh god, <laughs> I know. <laughs> But never mind. Um, so talking of uh, promising so much but delivering little, our old pal UTT Rob, that's not a dig at him, that's talking about his stable, he pops up with a really good shout, saying that Riot Squad to him was everything that was wrong with female factions in WWE in the 2010s. They never used the numbers game, so what's the point of a faction? The faction felt like less than the sum of its parts and turned into a vehicle for Liv Morgan, to eat Jolly Ranchers. And that comment just reminded me, Danny, that you can't get Jolly Ranchers in the UK anymore, or, or at least not in Hull. It's quite upsetting. Yeah, um, somebody brought back some when they went to uh, Florida not that long ago, and they are amazing, for one. <laughs> but unfortunately, we have to talk about the Rice Squad. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't see a lot of that, but from what I've seen, yeah, it just did I mean, I think... Um, was Ruby Riot the leader? Yeah, she was. Yeah, um, and you know, I've 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 always liked Ruby Riot slash Soho, yeah. but but yeah, uh, Rob's right. They they were more just a group of friends that came out for each other's match from time to time. Like even when the group itself turned heel, um, yeah, there was there was nothing to them really, which, which is a shame because yeah, they they could have been better than what they were really to be honest if they'd, yes. if they'd put a bit of work into them no you're 100% right and when you say um, uh, riot squad I think of a terrible and I, I do think I talked to Rob about this on Twitter and when it happened a terrible segment where Jim the Admiral Nightheart had not long just passed away and the um, riot squad put his picture on a table because they were going to have a tables match and it was it just soured me on the entire um, group there. So yeah, 
Yeah, it was it was a bit tactless, really, wasn't it? But uh, yeah. but yeah, never mind. Uh, we get another comment from Matt Butler, who continues to break my nineties heart with this one, saying that Los Bariquas were the dirt worst of the gang warfare factions. Savio Vega was the pits. They looked like extras from Guys and Dolls, with the addition of Miguel and his hairy hairiness. And while I can't say I disagree, because gang warfare was awful um he just has to keep breaking my heart doesn't he this guy <laughs> he's really a heel here because i think he's completely wrong with that i, I haven't seen too much 1997 wwf but they were certainly not the worst is he forgetting doa that exactly <laughs> exactly that was the dirt worst of the gang warfare factions yes and actually technically the Truth Commission were lumped in this whole gang warfare thing, even though uh, they didn't do a lot there. So you could make the argument that they were the dirt worst, even though they had the incredible B squared in their group. Oh, yes, he was in there, wasn't he? Yes. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it would have to go. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're certainly worse than Lost Bariquas. Absolutely. Uh, but there are a few worse than Matt Butler who, for our final comment of the show, commits the ultimate cardinal sin by commissioning the Dungeon of Doom into the most disappointing factions. Uh, apparently, we were meant to take them seriously until you saw Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker as the Leprechaun, John Tenter as the Shark, and Brutus the Barber Beefcake as the Zodiac, which proves my point further, Matt, that you are completely wrong. You were never supposed to take the Dungeon of Doom seriously. So therefore, I am changing your comment, and the Dungeon of Doom is the one faction of all of these mentioned that actually met their perceived promise because they didn't have any to begin with. Very true, actually, yeah. If you think about it, they were just created to feud with Hulk Hogan. And yeah. uh, it was just like... <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think that the, this whole group is made together to make um, to put Kevin Sullivan on top or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Matt, we do thank you for your comments, mate. And yeah. I know we've we've ragged on you a bit. We we love you like a brother. You're you're a great bloke. We'd love to have you on the show sometime. But you've you've really got to start agreeing with everything that we agree with and liking everything that we like, or else we're we're just gonna have a problem, fella. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, Matt, never stop being you because they were excellent comments all round. Yeah. Uh, and as always, mate, we got some awesome feedback from our incredible listeners, and we love each and every one of you. But all good things must come to an end. So before we close out, Danny, what will we be talking about next time, my friend? Well, the next time I went through a big list of like what I wrote down and I was thinking, no, it has to be this. So we are going to back to the impact zone, Chris, and we're going to be looking at an incredible rivalry of Mr. Ken Anderson versus Kurt Angle in the early part of 2010. It was a four month feud, which we're going to be looking at three incredible matches. And yeah. And what did, and did this, can this feud still hold up is the question that I want to know. 
brilliant, mate. That sounds really good. Yeah, I I remember actually that. Yeah, uh, when Ken Anderson debuted in TNA, he was he was very strong straight from the off, wasn't he? And he had a lot to prove, having recently been released by WWE. So yeah, mate, this 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 could really be something. I think. Yeah, thank you, mate. So I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. Yes, mate, as am I. So, yeah, that will be great fun. So I'm sure we'll have some nice back and forth going through the research over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, gang, uh, what what do you want us to cover? Um, you can always leave us messages at One Man's Meat Pod on Twitter for the time being until we decide, like everybody else, that we've had enough of Elon Musk and go on to threads or mastodon or something like that uh, but in in the meantime we are available on twitter we're also available individually so you can hit me personally upon twitter at real chris bellis as utt rob says it really is more about the mutuals and it is the followers so i will follow you back and uh, i will talk to you about anything you want to talk about so so please do i'm one of those odd people where a stranger is just a friend that you haven't met yet and what about you danny uh list your socials and where can the boys and girls hear more of your glorious content mate yep you can find me on twitter at scottish struggle you can hear me on here on one man's meet with the great chris bellis you can hear me on back when with the great ty peters and you can hear me on nitro nights with the great side power where we're a bit disappointed about Roddy Piper not showing up um, currently, but <laughs> who knows what's going to happen next. <laughs> exactly. It's all part of the fun. Uh, and folks, we really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, it was a well-known fact that you were either Nexus or against them. But as always, we are glad to have had you with us for another episode of Wrestling Archaeology. Cold Cuts will be back next week as we hit the final stretch of Wrestling Society X. However, guys, in the meantime and in between time, stay beefy, Meatsiders! <laughs>